Good evening and welcome to episode 13 of Scottonomics. We've got a fantastic show tonight and it's actually, we've got a 50 minute video for you to play. So we're starting bang on time tonight and we're going to get into the video as first we can, as soon as we can. But welcome to Scottonomics. Every couple of weeks on during this COP week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and we're also helping out on a show on Thursday and Friday. We try and bring you the view of economics from across the planet um, and talk about the things that we really need to discuss when we're considering Scotland and the economy of Scotland. And to do that, I'm always joined by my co-host, Karen Van Sweden. Hello, Karen. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. So really interesting guest tonight. Um, and I just wanted to give a shout out to um, the very funny Joe McGreeny, who tweeted today that the best thing that could happen at COP26 is for Greta and Nicola to meet up. Um, apparently, he thinks the resulting explosion of Gaminati electric rage would power the planet for decades, which I thought was actually very funny. Yes, it is. <laughs> and, and I'm sure it's correct as well. Uh, well, maybe we can use that, um, that what was it, electric rage um, to power our economy rather than oil and gas. And that's the subject <laughs> of what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, a fantastic interview that we did it's a couple of weeks ago now because so in demand was Ben. And we actually got Ben just after he presented his paper about the American oil and gas industry and the kind of uh, lifting the lid on what had happened in the 60s, 70s and 80s and 90s in terms of delay and denial. We got him in between that and the one that he co-authored about the big oil in France, who'd done exactly the same thing. So um, I don't know how you feel, Kim, but we were, I, I feel we were incredibly lucky to get him. I mean, he's completely in demand now, you know, CNN type style person he's in. So we've been really lucky to get him and um, we really enjoyed the interview. He was such a nice guy, wasn't he? Oh, lovely guy, yeah. And Scottonomics was there first, yay! <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. We got him first. Um, I really hope you enjoy this um, interview. If you can't see it all, it'll, on, it'll stay on the channel for as long as we're here and you can drop back in. But there's some absolute uh, nuggets in here and it's an incredible story and he's a really good storyteller as well. So over to you, Karen, for the introduction. So... Ben Franta is a Stanford PhD student uh, of the history of science. He's working on the history of climate politics and the role of science in policymaking. Franta is also an associate at the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, where he earned a PhD in applied physics. So he has two PhDs and he's going to tell us some interesting things tonight. Yeah, he's probably the smartest person we've had on Scottonomics, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> okay, enjoy the enjoy the interview, everyone. Ben Franta, thanks very much for joining us on Scottonomics as we build up to COP26 in my hometown of Glasgow. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's a pleasure. Um, before we get stuck into your amazing paper, which how I found you and, and we got you to come on to the show, um, I'd like to mention a couple of things. Um, the first thing being, um, you might not be aware of this, but last month Aberdeen University announced that they would be divesting from fossil fuel extraction companies. And, and this comes after an eight-year-long campaign from Aberdeen students in the People and Planet Network. Now, this is a big announcement in itself, but considering Aberdeen is at the heart of the oil and gas industry in the UK, it's got the potential to have an even bigger impact. And of course, it comes only the month before COP26. 
which, as I said, takes place in Scotland. Now, considering, I believe you were arrested while at Harvard for yeah. demonstrating for divestment, I take it this will bring a smile to your face? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's so important. Um, you know, Harvard recently divested as well after a nine-year-long campaign. And when I was there, you know, we we tried all sorts of different strategies. We tried different different uh, forms of protest, including civil disobedience. So some of us were arrested. And, you know, I want to mention that that research has also looked at, you know, what what is necessary to do from an investment standpoint to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. And, and they all find that that investors have to reduce their investments in fossil fuels. So it's really, um, it's really important that institutions take that seriously and do divest. And so it is really great to hear that news. And, you know, I think we're gonna just see more and more divestment announcements because there's really very little excuse or reason anymore to remain invested in fossil fuels. Okay, it's a little bit more of an open door, isn't it, that we're pushing um, now? Um, Kieran's actually lives in Aberdeen, so it was very close, close to yeah. her heart and close to her home. Building on that, I feel really lucky to be speaking to two such influential campaigners against big oil. Now, as you know, because I forwarded you some information, um, Kieran has been part of a case brought against the UK government under the Paid to Pollute campaign. And as we've just covered, you had a role in the investment movement in the US. Now, I'd like to actually ask both of you, if that's okay, Karen, um, how important is individual action and group action by campaigners against the fossil fuel industry? And what more can we do? But Ben, if you want to go first on that. You know, I try to, to view individual and group action as being, you know, synergistic. Uh, we don't have to choose between them. Of course, you know, we all look inside of ourselves to decide, you know, what we're going to do with our lives, what we're going to do with our time on earth how we're going to apply ourselves and you know that's an individual thing but at the same time we usually have the most impact when we join together with others uh you know towards a common goal and so that's that's how i try to view it and and i think often when we when we talk about individual or group action what we're what we sometimes mean is consumer action you know, ma making a trying to make a difference as a consumer or political action, you know, that sometimes it's code for those things, actually. And, you know, again, I think we I think it's clear that making decisions purely, you know, from a consumer standpoint is not adequate to address climate change, that we also have to be political, we have to organize ourselves politically. But of course, you know, it's important to, you know, make those consumer decisions if we can as well. So there's not a contradiction between the two. We can, we can do both and, you know, apply ourselves in, in whatever way that we can. And, you know, the way that one way that I think about this sometimes, and this brings us back to the divestment movement, is identifying a goal that currently seems impossible, that currently seems hard to imagine. Like 10 years ago, divestment was pretty unheard of. And it seemed very radical um, and hard to imagine that big institutions would actually do this. 
And so identifying that goal that is still possible, it's, it's possible in some universe. And if it comes to pass, it's going to make a difference. And it's going to shift the paradigm of how we deal with climate change. And then, you know, joining together with other people and pushing towards that goal, even if it takes years to make that difference. And that's sort of one way that, um, that I try to think about, you know, what's effective in terms of of acting on climate change. But of course, there's no authoritative answer. It's a creative question. It's it's for all of us to to use our imaginations and try to figure out, you know, what what should we do? What is the most effective thing we can do? So I'd love, you know, those are my thoughts for whatever they're worth, but I'd love to hear yours as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, of course, individual action is important, but, you know, really, uh, we are in a situation w where we have an existential threat to our lives. And this is why government needs to step in and why I feel strongly about taking the UK government to court to try and shake them out of their uh, neoliberal, um, quite libertarian thinking um, about that somehow the markets will solve this problem. The markets will not solve this problem. This has to be viewed as a warlike effort. All governments need to step up now, do the deficit spending, get the Green New Deals going. Um, and this has to happen now. It should have happened long ago. In the UK, after hearing our, um, I hate to say it, but our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and also the Chancellor, I don't think we've had a government that seems as far removed from the climate crisis as we have now. What more can we do, should we do, especially thinking about COVID? It's a really good question. And it kind of brings us to, you know, what, what do the COP meetings do? And I think it's, you know, it is time for a sort of maybe a reevaluation of the COP process. Um, and I don't mean this to, to criticize the process, but just looking at the history of it, you know, I mean, it's been, you know, about 30 years or so, almost 30 years of, of meetings. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, what have they accomplished? And, you know, if they're not accomplishing enough, then how can we change them to, to do more. And, you know, of course, the, the Paris Agreement was extremely important that that provided a global standard or, or a, a benchmark for countries to use and even for courts to use. You know, we're seeing courts of law now um, seeking to enforce uh, the requirements of the Paris Agreement. So that's very important. Um, but at the same time, I think it's also important that we, we don't we don't accept as good enough um, a, uh, cop meetings that are primarily um, public relations events or, you know, a time to make announcements that that could happen anyway, you know, that would have or could have happened anyway. So, you know, that's not to level criticism at the process, but it's just to, to look at it and, and really ask yourselves, you know, what is, what is being, uh, what's being accomplished and how can we, how can we accelerate action? Um, but I, you know, again, I'd love to hear what you think as well, because it's, it's not something that I interact with much. I personally have never gone to a, a cop meeting or anything like that. Ben, your paper, Weaponizing Economics, illustrated how the fossil fuel industry has funded and it's the need for us, all of us to better scrutinize what economists are saying. Yes, in a word, yes. And, you know, in this history, this 
this recent article, it just traces the history of a pretty small group of economists. It was like three or four people primarily working through an economic consulting firm in the US. And they had been hired by the American Petroleum Institute, by other groups in the oil industry to write these reports, evaluating how much getting off of fossil fuels would cost. So every time there was a climate policy proposed in the United States, uh, like a carbon tax, even back in the early 1990s, uh, these economists would be hired by the oil industry to say, you know, this is how expensive it's going to be. And they always said it's going to be too expensive. You know, basically don't, don't do it. Don't implement this policy. And it was very successful. And the oil industry went back to these same economists again and again and again for, you know, now essentially 30 years. And so it's very important to scrutinize what's happening. And, and of course it's, you know, it's not just that they were hired by the oil industry, their models themselves were designed in a way so that they could only find this answer that climate policy would be too expensive. You know, so for example, they would inflate the cost of renewable energy. They would assume in some of their models that renewable energy would always be eight times ex expensive uh, as fossil fuels forever, you know, for a hundred years into the future. <laughs> and of course you're going to find that it's expensive mm -hmm. if you assume that. And, and then as far as the benefits of climate action, they completely ignored those. They didn't even attempt to calculate that. So with this approach, they could only find that it's expensive. And the thing is it worked, you know, this, it's a basically a lobbying strategy that it appears to be science, but it's essentially lobbying and, and it worked. And it wasn't just American policy in the United States. It was also aimed at the international treaty process, like the Kyoto protocol and, you know, at the COP meetings that we were just talking about. So, you know, this is super important. Um, I know that there might be some economists um, out there who don't want the scrutiny or feel maybe a bit offended that, you know, the dis discipline's coming under greater scrutiny, or they think, you know, this is the way that the field works, but it's the planet that's at stake everything is at stake. And so it's not, it's not worth it to sacrifice the planet for the sake of, you know, keeping a certain economic ideology alive that just happens to exist at this time in history. Um, you know, so I think it's, it's very important. It's not just the, the consulting firms. It's also the academic groups that are funded by the oil industry. Some of them are using similar methodologies. So all of this for the public good, it has to come under much greater scrutiny, I think. Yeah, I mean, um, you mentioned earlier on in the paper that um, there's the, the two other economists as well who weren't involved in the, the study that you were talking about, but William Nordhaus of Yale University and Thomas Schelling of Harvard. Now, these are very uh, well thought of institutions, but their theories, I mean, I have to say, you know, I have a basic science bachelor's and, it, you know, their, their theories are really, they're wild. I mean, you, you, just, you just can't believe you're reading it. Um, and it, you, do you want to maybe tell our audience a little bit about 
what their theories are about climate change and how they'll affect society. Absolutely. This was back in the early 1980s when, you know, some big scientific reports came out in the U.S. about climate science, what's the future of climate change. And, you know, these two very famous economists uh, that you mentioned, they basically said, yeah, it might be bad, but we'll probably just adapt to it. You know, society is very malleable and adaptable. And I mean, that's fine as a guess, you know, as a hypothesis, but to, to sort of jump to that conclusion and then, and then impose the risk of global warming on everybody in the future, you know, is, is pretty unethical and it's not rigorous. It's not, you know, it's not really a logical conclusion. It's more like wishful thinking more than anything else. So even though these people are very famous, even though they come from prestigious institutions and, you know, it's an example of a broader point, which is that, you know, just because somebody's from a fancy, you know, university or something, or has a fancy title, it doesn't mean that their conclusion is, you know, valid or that it's, that it's robust or well thought through. And I think this is especially true for climate, um, you know, because there's so much money at stake and so much at stake for, you know, different industries and all of that, that there has been a lot of sort of, um, I guess you would call it like poor quality analysis. Um, and, you know, right, everyday people who might not be technical experts, they might feel like, well, you know, I don't know what to think. I'm, I'm not like an expert in this area, but that's why we need to, you know, I'm a big fan of broadening the tent and sort of democratizing the discussion because it, you know, it shouldn't be controlled by just, a, you know, a few technical experts. And as we're seeing, sometimes their analyses aren't even that good. So um, <laughs> that's, you know, I think a, a broader lesson. Yeah, I mean, it was surprising for me as well that the US National Academy of Science, uh, the report in 1983, unfortunately signed off on some of these economists and their quite spurious predictions. You know, why did this happen? I mean, it was disappointing for me to realize it was a physicist who signed off on this. And you you have a, a PhD in applied physics. How did, how did you feel about that when you read that? There was a lot of evidence to the contrary by that point. I mean, 15, 20 years of, of research saying that, uh, that, that it, was, it was down to um, human actions that were warming the planet. You know, there was a huge amount of evidence. But as Karen said, they just went against that. Why? Yeah, you know, it, it's a really good question. I mean, I'm actually interested in investigating that question you know, why, despite all the evidence, uh, you know, did, did these people sign off on the idea that we shouldn't do anything? And, you know, were there, were there special interest pressures there? Maybe it was purely ideology, but maybe there are other, other pressures as well. So to me, that's an important historical question to understand. Um, but I think, you know, that early 80s is a really important time for climate change because by that point scientists had figured out how fast climate change was going to progress they they figured out how sensitive the earth is to more carbon dioxide so that allowed them to predict you know if we use this much fossil fuel this is how much global warming will result so they knew that by 1980 
And by 1980, companies like Exxon were doing internal analyses that were predicting, okay, what can we do to avoid a CO2, a carbon dioxide buildup? So that was the fork in the road. You know, by that, by that time, history could have been different and should have been different. And, you know, instead of going for the, the safer path, uh, the industry went for the more dangerous path for, for everyone. And so that's a really important uh, part of the history. And it's important to realize that, that the way things have turned out was not inevitable. Uh, there were choices, there were forks in the road, just like our future right now is not inevitable one way or the other. It's unwritten. It depends on what we do. So what, you know, when I think about the history of climate, I really think about that 1980 as like things could have been different from then and we would have a very different present now uh, had they been. Yeah, the David Montgomery report of 1991 seems to me to uh, emphasize also politicians over reliance on a couple of metrics. We've discussed this with other economists as well, you know, GDP or GNP, you know, when clearly it seems to me uh, that you as a politician, you would need to look at multiple measures. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this comes from the the macroeconomic um paradigms or ideologies that have become dominant you know i mean one of the ideologies that these economists use was the assumption that everything is working optimally in the absence of regulation you know in the absence of government action which of course is a completely you know wrong assumption to make um and it's untestable so it's not really a scientific hypothesis even it's more just a something to take on faith. And that's a very long, it's very old kind of way of thinking about the economy that a free market, you know, optimizes itself or finds a, a, an optimal equilibrium. Things like that are creeping into this analysis, right? And, you know, then you have those outputs like, you know, GDP and so on, these macroeconomic outputs that don't look at all about, okay, you know, how is this actually affecting people's lives individually? You know, is this, is this a healthy economy or is it not? Yeah, we need a completely different way of thinking about economics. And if you think about climate change as a economic mismanagement problem, it's, it's huge, it's terrible. I mean, that a society will knowingly and intentionally decide to create a global disaster for itself um, and think that that's economically <laughs> wise or, or even optimal is, is like very silly. And, you know, I wonder how people will think a hundred or 200 years from now, looking back <laughs> at us today, but definitely economics needs a, it needs a much closer look and new ways of thinking. Professor mm -hmm. Stephen Keene, who we've interviewed on the show has said that everyone knew what the problems were. The, econ the economists knew they could have been developing models and we could have had a very different future. So he completely backs up um, your point there. 
Yeah, I was going to say that uh, you also mentioned in your paper uh, Lorenzetti et al. 1996, and they they state that the IPCC was government by stealth, <laughs> and that remark seems to me to suggest a very libertarian mindset amongst mm -hmm. the oil and gas aristocracy. Do you think that that, that is their mindset? I think so. Yes. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, in the United States, at least the tobacco industry would fight against tobacco regulation by fighting against all regulation, by fighting against the idea of regulation and creating a whole ideological or intellectual pipeline, um, you know, from universities to lobbying groups, different think tanks and so on, or even just influencing you know, the American mindset, and of course this applies globally. And so there is that, there is that long history of big business interests fighting against the very concept of, of regulation in general. And it goes all the way back, you know, you can go back to like a hundred years ago and it's, it's kind of it's the similar battles that are being fought in the United States, things like the New Deal um, and all of that, you know, that was fought by by big business interests and so on as well. So this has been a long running battle. It's a battle over power and money and wealth. And, you know, it's sort of like, kind of takes you all the way back to Marx in a way, like this sort of battle over, over you know, who controls politics by controlling, you know, resources and money and, and how do the two intertwine. But yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, it's, it's not just a fight against fossil fuel regulation. It, for many of these industries, it's a fight against the idea of regulation in general. So it seems very much to me a tactic of the oil and gas aristos, I would put them, to mm -hmm. almost require some form of genu genuflection from the general public and politicians because they provide so many jobs. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's such a fascinating issue is, you know, what are the sources of the oil industry's power politically, right? I mean, at least in the United States, they it, they don't employ that many people. It's not a super labor-intensive industry, very profitable. And, you know, it kind of goes without saying, like, you know, the industry is politically powerful. But, I mean, it's a great question to understand, well, what what exactly are the sources of its power? And the reason it's important be is because those are the intervention points to erode its power, which is necessary, you know, to get fossil fuels replaced as rapidly as possible. Um, so I don't know what it's like in Scotland, uh, but you know, I'd I'd love to to learn about that. Well, well, yeah, the oil and gas industry here, um, you know, for the last few years hasn't paid any tax. There's been no revenue paid into the exchequer. Uh, and, and obviously, when we're talking about profit, it's the profits made by the shareholders of these companies. So of course they're paying, of course they're paying salaries for workers, but there's not a huge amount of profit that comes yeah. back into the economy. And and it, it's it's not a ultimately decided to destroy that society knowingly. So and and that's sort of a, that's a historical tragedy that that change. Yeah, and as well as that um, implied um, fear of the loss of work and employment, mm -hmm. there's also uh, the Charles River Associates very much emphasised um, that there would be an extra tax burden 
um, mm -hmm. if we went if we went down with this regulation, there'd be an extra tax burden. So there was another reason um, to fear this regulation. Absolutely. I mean, the way that these economists usually uh, formulate their talking points is to say, this is how much GDP it'll cost. This is how many jobs it'll cost. And this is how much it'll cost the average family, you know, say $4,000 a year. And, you know, that's very effective because, you know, it gets, uh, it gets, you know, uh, politicians attention and it gets in you know individual families attention and then that, that, those are the talking points they've continued to use for for decades and you know i i noticed this trend actually actually accidentally back in 2017 when i was doing historical research i was reading through the historical newspaper record to do some climate change history research and i noticed these economists coming up again and again and at that time uh then president trump was withdrawing the United States from the Paris Agreement. And he gave a speech to that effect and, and cited some economic statistics that sounded really familiar. They were exactly in that format. And I thought it was weird that any economist would you know, be coming up with that. So I tracked down the study that he cited and it was by the exact same individuals who had been, you know, I'd just been reading about in the newspaper records from you know the early to mid 90s so i stumbled on that accidentally and you know but it, it goes to show that that strategy has been used you know for decades and we should our ears should perk up a little bit when we hear those statistics you know being used to fight against uh, climate policy you know i think our ears should perk up and we should think, well, okay, you know, who's funding this? And is this really, does this study even really make sense? Or are we just, are they just trying to scare us into inaction? It, it takes a lot, um, you know, a lot of hard work to look into these surveys just to, uh, and these research projects, just to understand them. You know, it's mm -hmm. not, it's not normal for someone to look at a statistic and think, I wonder yeah. what the methodology is that's, that, that's brought us to that. That seems, you know, really difficult. And, you know, we're, we're, it's amazing that we've got people like you who are, who are able and willing to spend the time to look into that. It was, when I read your paper, um, it was incredible, the level of detail, but nothing surprised me. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think you mentioned a couple of times the tobacco industry is a reference and we've known for 30 years that the tobacco industry knew the damage that um, uh, nicotine was doing and didn't do anything about it. So when I was reading that the oil industry was doing the same, it was this kind of like, well, uh, uh, of course we were. And <laughs> yeah. do, do you think that's, a, is that a similar reaction that you've heard from other people? And if it is, what does it tell us about the society that we've got as we head into a climate crisis? I mean, that's a really profound question. You know, if, if something's not surprising us, but it's, you know, arguably wrong or evil or destructive, then we have to ask ourselves why we weren't, you know, why are we complacent about it? You know, and are we complacent about it? And, um, you know, I, I've spoken to many different economists who've worked, you know, in the policy arena, and some of them said, well, this is just the way the game is played. And my reaction to that was, you know, I mean, that is, that has to be unacceptable. You know, that has to be unacceptable. We, that can't be something that's normalized, you know, from an ethical point of view. And so, yeah, I think there is, there is a lot of what uh, 
what you know we might call malignant normality, meaning a situation that is normalized, but it is unhealthy and damaging. And you know, I think that's happened with climate sort of delay and stasis. You know, the that we tolerate year on year of of inaction. Um, but you know, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's it really raises some questions. It, it really does. Also, it brings to mind the arguments and the discussions we had around Brexit. Yeah. Um, and we heard from the leave, never listen to experts, you know, and yeah. don't listen to experts. And and at the time, a lot of people were, were riling against that. Yeah. But there's some truth in that from the discussion that, mm -hmm. both, that, that both of you have been having, isn't there? You know, just because someone is an economist or says scientist, you still just can't think, well, just because they've said that, it has to be true. You have to look into it. But the flip side of that is that if these people are saying this, you really need to give it some uh, time to look into to look into the, the details of it compared to just listening to, to random people. So I do think there's a you know there's definitely a, a difficulty with us looking at these reports and say, well, that's what you get when people don't put enough time and effort into it. And it raises a few things. I mean, one one of the strategies that that these industries use is they'll put out reports that are not like peer reviewed or anything they sort of self publish them might be a white paper as they're called or something like that and sometimes they're really long like they're 400 pages long so it makes it almost impossible to review it and understand and evaluate it you know how credible and trustworthy is it and that's one of the problems too and you know yeah there's a sort sort of this debate about cultural debate about, you know, what's the role of experts? What's the role of expertise? And, you know, it's funny, I, I grew up in um, a really small town in Iowa, in the US, and, you know, town of about a 1000 people very rural. And, you know, there, there wasn't this sort of hierarchy, social hierarchy of expertise that you, you know, have in, in urban centers with, you know, professionals making a lot of money and and so on and and so in my heart you know i kind of i empathize with this idea that you know we should think for ourselves that we we shouldn't just say oh this person said that you know so <laughs> that's that's the truth so you know it had it really does raise a, a big issue but i think at the end of the day you know one reason that people don't believe experts is because the status of being an expert has been abused by some people hmm. right you know i mean this economist example is a perfect one it's saying well i'm the expert i'm the economist this is how much you know climate policy costs and they don't expect people to look you know behind the curtain look under yeah. the hood and so it's really it's really on you know the people who are in positions of that of authority and public trust they have to take care not to abuse their position because when they do it rightfully erodes trust mm -hmm. you know it erodes trust in experts you know and that's the logical outcome of abusing that position so yeah. that i think that's important to that's an important part of this
I mean, that takes us into kind of greenwashing and uh, astroturfing. And, you know, that that famous example of the clean water was it the Clean Water Association being run by all the major polluters. Um, you know, these, <laughs> these things really do challenge our, 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 our belief system because we assume that there's some kind of rigorous uh, process going on behind these things. And I think it is really important that, that, that the media call out, you know, these, when they see this kind of astroturfing um, or this deliberate um, delay in denial to call it out. Um, I wanted to ask you about one of the most colourful characters in um, Scotland, East Sir Ian Wood. What do you think of his starring cameo in the 2014 Scottish independence referendum debate? Is this a type of overtly political lobbying commonplace in the US? And what does it say about the complicity of the media that they're happy to just cut and paste views like his about oil and in a way almost transpose his views as if he's some kind of authority on the climate? No, completely. And thanks for, you know, thanks for bringing him up. I wasn't familiar with him, but I looked at the links that you sent me. And, you know, one thing that struck me about what he said is that, you know, he warned that, uh, that, you know, Scotland was going to run out of oil in 35 years. You know, it's, to me, that's a strange statement because we, we can't be using much oil in 35 years and fossil fuel production globally has to decline immediately, you know, starting now. And so there's sort of this denial by action, you know, it's sort of like, it's kind of hard to find somebody who says, you know, I completely don't believe in climate science, or I don't believe in the greenhouse effect. Um, but they'll go on with their life as if it's not real. And so statements like, you know, like, oh my gosh, we're going to run out of oil in 30 years. It's like, well, I mean, if we're serious about climate change, if we're talking about meeting goals of the Paris Agreement or limiting global warming, then we can't be using much oil in 35 years. So, you know, there is sort of this, this contradiction and, you know, also this idea that, well, if we don't produce it, then we're simply going to import it from somewhere else. And, you know, they're, they do a dirtier job than we do. So it's going to be bad for the environment. And that's a classic a uh, classic talking point for for basically maintaining the status quo and and it's it's wrong because you know we know that demand for something is not a, a fixed quantity it's not a static amount it depends on supply supply side policies they do make a difference and i think that you know they they have to be a big part of of you know what countries do going forward and you know, I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna say that, you know, it's, it's amazing that people, even someone, you know, of advanced years can suffer from a short sightedness, right, a, a myopia, um, you know, as appears to be the case here, where, you know, in the long run, the entire world has to get off of oil. And other fossil fuels right so the question is how do we do that so you know i see that it's it's kind of more of the same these you know little little intellectual tricks basically to to keep things in place keep going with business as usual and you know that's that is ultimately going to be a very bad outcome for for the whole world if we do that i want to just take you back to that that kind of overtly political 
you know, he made that statement during the independence yeah. refer debate. Um, and the article that was written up in the Herald, I think it was, said an independent Scotland will run out of oil in 35 years. Yeah. And yeah. not, not, not Scotland, you know, an independent Scotland, as if that our wells were going to be a lot, not as deep as soon as we became independent. Business as usual thing I think is also interesting. And in that article around Aberdeen University divesting, I think it, they had a stat that 81% of people who were interviewed in the oil and gas industry would be happy to retrain in renewables. Yeah. Sure. And again, you can't be surprised by that. It's not like these people are going to go, no, I want to be covered in oil every day. You know, this is my <laughs> life, you know. Exactly. And, but again, you will hear this, that, you know, there's so many jobs as if these jobs just disappear mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than go on and do something else. So it's, it's, it's the whole, um, there's a whole variety of ways that, that we're bringing in. The media is so important, but also the politics to continue this, um, drilling and use of fossil fuels. So as we lead up to COP26 and, and someone from a different generation from Kieran and I, what do you expect to come out of COP26? What's your thoughts on, on what an impact and what difference it will make? I'll be just very blunt. I, uh, I don't expect much. <laughs> I don't mean that as, to be, you know, critical or anything, but it's, it, I think it's, you know, we've had meetings like this for, you know, 25 years or so. And what do we have to show for it? You know, what do we have to show for it? And maybe there's a good answer to that. I mean, maybe we do have a lot to show for it. But, you know, I see a lot of people going to the conferences. I see a lot of people making, you know, announcements about things that they're going to do with their business or with their government. And, then nothing changes, you know? And so I, I you know, I, I wanna be positive and optimistic about, you know, the process. And I hope that something significant comes from it, but, you know, it's important that, you know, things tangibly change, that things rapidly change. And, you know, the idea that, oh, well, we can't, you know, we can't announce our new policy until there's a COP meeting or something. I mean, that's a public relations approach to climate change, not a disaster avoidance approach. That's not a crisis approach to climate change. You know, that's, that's you know, when can we make our announcement to get, get good publicity? So, you know, and I, again, this is a question where I don't have a lot of you know, special knowledge or expertise on that. I mean, I've never been to a COP meeting. I've always kind of wondered why people <laughs> go to them. Like, you know, it's like kind of like going to a boxing match and like thinking that your attendance will influence the outcome. I mean, it could be interesting to go still. We need to be talking about um, zero, net zero by 2030. Mm -hmm. uh, 2050 is just, it, it is, it is a pathway that's just far too far. Absolutely. It's so easy to kick the can down the road. And, you know, now we're seeing that with the net zero framing. I mean, I, I personally, I think that net zero as a term is misleading inherently because it implies that we have processes for, you know, removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And of course, you know, technologically we do, but carbon capture is very expensive so that really raises the question of, is that going to be economically viable? 
you know, and things like planting forests and stuff like that. I mean, that doesn't really take carbon out of the coupled biosphere atmosphere system, right? It doesn't put it back into that geologic reservoir where the fossil carbon originally came from. So that's, that's not a reversal of the process either. And so, you know, that's, but it's still being adopted this net zero, you know, language. And so I worry that the international, um, you know, bureaucracy, essentially, it wants to save face, I think. And, you know, so it's going to continue with the pledges. Now, I don't want to sound like I, you know, don't think we should, we should have an international process. I think we should, but it just has to be more effective and it has to be based on more than just, you know, promises and pledges and, and things like that. Um, and it can't, it also shouldn't give false assurances. You know, you mentioned the fact that already groups are trying to flex beyond two degrees Celsius. And there, there is this pattern of like, don't worry, it's under control, we'll fix it, and then not doing anything. And, you know, ultimately, that's a really unethical thing to do, I think. So there's a lot of belief yeah. in international agreements that stems from the Millennium Development Goals mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because they were really successful and what they were targeting, yeah. they had a lot of success. And I, I think the international community think, well, the Sustainable Development Goals can have the same type of success. But the one difference I would highlight is that the Millennium Development Goals were all improved by growth. Yeah. And the yeah. Sustainable Development Goals are all negatively impacted by growth if they're taken globally. And that's a huge difference. If you're encouraging mm -hmm. a country to grow and to, and to achieve all the things it can do with a little bit of growth, then that's very different from saying to a lot of countries, you can't grow and you've got to stop growing. So I think the idea that we can just transpose the success from the Millennium Development Goals to, to the Sustainable Development Goals um, are, are proving to be really difficult because of the fixation on growth and that's what we cover quite a lot mm -hmm. on Scotonomics mm -hmm. is this fixation on growth. I guess I just wanted to say a couple of things to you both about um, COP26 and mm -hmm. to put a maybe more optimistic note. Yeah. Um, yeah, please do. <laughs> what I would say is over my lifetime, I'll be 55 in November, so you know the Club of Rome published their book in 1972 when I was six mm -hmm. and you know that that information was coming out then I think that young people now are much more educated about climate change than we were then. I mean, I've picked up on it. I was the kid that watched a little news program for children. I've picked up on that then. Um, so certainly I would say quite a few young people that I've spoken to in Aberdeen who are working in the oil industry don't want to be in it. They understand mm -hmm. what it's doing and they are trying to get out of the oil industry. Um, I think people in general, certainly there's some, some that, that I've read some evidence on this, that, that they, they've done experiments with rats where literally they will not jump out of a maze until there's a fire behind them, you know? And I think to a certain extent, that is how people respond. But I think the fire is here, and I think a lot of people could see the fire. You know, it's in places that they know, you know? So maybe people didn't notice that, India had five, uh, 50 degrees a few years ago, but they're noticing Greece and they're noticing mm -hmm. Africa and they're noticing Germany and it's the powerful people in the north noticing that uh, they actually have the power to do something about it. 
Um, I think the other thing I'd really like to see happening, and I think we all need to encourage everyone in politics that we know about this, is the governments need to be scrutinising all these types of evidence. And they, if, they, if they're not employing enough people to do it, they need to employ more people to do that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm hopeful that COP, there's a lot of young people I really feel really passionate and serious about this, and I think they will move the narrative. I, I really am hopeful about that. That would be amazing. And... You know, I think things things are changing. I mean, if we look at the last 10 years, social movements around the world to do with climate change have grown immensely in power and size and diversity of, of strategies and things like that over the last 10 years. The technology continues to change I and mean, the market position of the fossil fuel industry continues to be eroded over time. You know, and even the legal movement to hold fossil fuel companies and governments accountable for their inaction or their deceptions you know that is also a powerful front that that has emerged lately so i think all of these things sort of couple together they all move together and and reinforce each other and and you know hopefully that will also feed into the the cop process and you know make that process even well make it more powerful hopefully <laughs> yeah my, my concern is that the best outcomes of COP26 are not going to be anywhere near enough. Yeah. And I think that is commonly, commonly understood that if we are, if, if we are pushing towards, pushing towards 1.5, it's, there's nothing that the pathways to 1.5, I think are behind us. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's a huge issue, as you said at the start. So I think even if we come out and we do make some progress, um, towards you know maybe dropping it down to 2045 there's still that huge misunderstanding and, and this is again I, I doubt you'll be aware of this but this is directly impacting Scotland because a lot of companies are building sorry are buying land to plant trees in the highlands mm -hmm. of Scotland so Scotland mm -hmm. has there's something like 500 people own half of Scotland it's the most wow. it, yeah it, I think it's only Brazil that has more of a, 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 a small, a concentrated uh -huh. share of private land and that's going to intensify with these companies buying huge tracks to plant you know one type of tree mm -hmm. and this such a huge impact and i think when things like that have an impact you know it's maybe it's not floods or temperature but when we can start to see that the the, the the amount of land that we control which is already so small is mm -hmm. is diminishing and also mm -hmm. you know we've got things like our peatlands there's 1.7 billion tons mm -hmm. of carbon stored in our peatlands if i was to overlay which i have done if i overlay who owns the land on top of where all the peatlands are it's almost exclusively private land mm -hmm. so how can mm -hmm. we move to a green transition when we don't have any control of the yeah. of the land so mm -hmm. huge issues mm -hmm. in every country on the planet is experiencing around climate and as Kieran said I think if you can focus on that and get people motivated about the thing that's the fire behind them in the maze then I do think we have that but I just can't see it for this COP you know maybe that maybe the one after so you know I do I, I do think that all of these small things together will create a big thing and I am hopeful I think you know um and also, I think the fact that I'm doing this climate change litigation is actually inspiring a few people around about me. So, and if they get involved and they do more, then that'll inspire people around about them. So I think it's, it's, it is all incremental, but I think we're mm -hmm. coming to a, a, a critical mass of, you know, that it will come together. 
Well, the, the power is definitely in knowledge and we would encourage everyone to spend a good half an hour in reading your paper because it really does shed a light on what we know is not just happening in the US, but globally and specifically uh, those few comments of yours that show that Scotland is certainly not immune from the, uh, the, 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 the delay and the denial that's been happening in the US. Ben, thanks very much for your time. It's been great talking to you and all the best. Thank you very much. It's great to, great to chat. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hi, Kieran, are you with us? Oh, you're, you're a little bit pixelated. Let's see how, you're, you're, how your volume I'm is. I'm with you. I'm oh, great, great. Um, well, I hope everyone enjoyed that. It was great to have two really inspirational people talk about uh, their campaigning um, on the climate crisis, Karen and um, Ben. Uh, we've had loads of comments uh, about Ben and, and a lot of people watching tonight. So thanks very much for that. Karen, any thoughts before we head off for the night? Yeah, so um, I just wanted to flag up something to our viewers. It's a fantastic film that um, I, I showed to Transition Town Tayport about 12 years ago. It's called The Age of Stupid. It's currently available on the iPlayer, um, on the BBC iPlayer, on uh, Channel 4, on the BBC iPlayer. Um, it really is a, a clarion call, um, and it had a profound effect on me, and I would really recommend it to people to watch that. And maybe you want to tell people what we've got going tomorrow night as well, William. Yeah, that's such a brilliant point that you made about that film. What year was it made? Uh, 12 years ago it came out. She, the, the director, Franny Armstrong, flagged it up yesterday. It's, it's incredible because we've known these things for, as Ben said, since, you know, initial reports from the 60s um, through to real kind of proper science saying here's the timeline of this in the 80s and the 90s we've known about it right through the last 20 years and it's only really now that there seems to be some kind of momentum uh, to make a difference and that momentum is taking us through this whole week uh, with shows so um uh, we had ben tonight tomorrow we have a brilliant real kind of in-depth uh, geopolitical look at the climate crisis um, with Fadel Kaboud and we get into a lot of really interesting ideas around um, climate debt and reparations and social justice and some of the figures that um, Fidel talks about are, just seem absolutely monumental in terms of the wealth that's gone from the global south to the global north and how we have to look at climate in the context of that. That's absolutely fantastic um, um, session tomorrow. And then on Wednesday we have a live session, an actual bona fide live with our guest live, um, Richard Murphy, and we're going to get into details of the Green New Deal. And I certainly think that's probably going to be one of the most important episodes that we've got this year because it covers the climate crisis but it also covers monetary sovereignty and fiscal deficits and job guarantee scheme and all of these other issues and, and Richard is probably one of the per the people across the globe who is most knowledgeable about the Green New Deal having proposed it you know, a, num a number of years ago so that's going to be a fantastic episode as well so three episodes from us this week I really hope you can join us again um, or catch up because I know how busy everyone is. But thanks so much for joining. Um, Kieran, thanks so much for tonight, and I'll see you tomorrow. Good night. Bye, everyone.